I truly enjoy being a youth pastor. Students often say the most amazing things. In fact, just a few moments ago, as I was heading into the sanctuary, one of them turned to me and he said, Troy, I expect you to be a lot better now that you're ordained. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if I'll be any better, but maybe I have the privilege of preaching a little longer now. Um, In all seriousness, I do strive to always do my very best, and yet uh, I'm so thankful that that's not what God's Word depends on, uh, but on God Himself. So let's go to Him in prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for your word that you have given to us. Thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Thank you for your son who gave his life for us. We pray this evening that you would be lifted up and magnified in our presence, that you would be glorified, and that you would grant us faith to believe and receive the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This evening we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 13 and 14 as we continue in our series on the life of Moses' leadership under fire. And here we reach a pivotal point in the history of God's people. We began our series in the early chapters of Exodus when God had called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And since that moment, Moses leading the people out, everything has been leading up to this moment where we find ourselves tonight. On the brink of the promised land. And I'm going to read a little bit at the beginning of chapter 13. And then a little bit at the end of chapter 14. And then I'll kind of fill in the narrative as we go throughout the message this evening. So beginning in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man. Every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. So that's where we're at. Moses is going to send the spies into the land. Now turn to chapter 14, verse 26. This is near the end of the story. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, And Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years. And shall suffer for your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Quite a different scene. At the end of chapter 14. We have to ask ourselves. What happened in the middle? The the normal phrase that we think of. Relating to the title for tonight's sermon. Is snatching victory. From the jaws of defeat. You might think of a sports team. Or a military battle. Where very near to the end. All hope seemed lost. 
and then right before the final buzzer or right at the end, somebody makes a shot or a hero comes in and saves the day and where you thought there was defeat, all of a sudden there is victory. But here, that phrase has been turned around on its head and we have the exact opposite happening. We have victory being snatched or we have defeat being snatched from the jaws of victory. The Israelites were on the brink of the promised land, about to enter it, about to see the fulfillment of the covenant. It should have been a time of great celebration. But as you can see from the end of chapter 14, that's not what happened. So what went wrong? How did this happen? And what does it mean for us today? I think we can begin to understand what went wrong by contrasting the fear and the unbelief of the majority with the faith of the few. And the fear and the unbelief of the majority begins right away with the opening statement of the report of the spies in verse 27 of chapter 13. So Moses has sent them out. They've done their job. Now they come back to give the report. And listen to what they say. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. The land to which you sent us. That's not the land they went to. Verse 2 of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. That's how God referred to the land. All the times when he made the promise, it was a land he was giving to the people of Israel. And yet, the majority did not believe that. They said, Moses, we've come back from the land to which you sent us. See, they were not already. Already they were not thinking of things from God's perspective. They were thinking of things from their own human perspective, indicating their unbelief, their lack of faith, even though the land was as it should be. Because look what they say. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Just as God said, it would be a land filled, flowing with milk and honey. Now further, if you look at verse 22, it indicates that they had gone to Hebron in the midst of their journey, spying out the land. They had come to Hebron. Now, Hebron would have been very significant to the Israelites, especially to these men who are heads of the tribes of Israel. If you remember anything from the history, you'll remember that in Hebron, it was near Hebron that Abraham received the promise that they would receive this land. And after he received that promise at Hebron, he built an altar to the Lord. It was also from Hebron that Abraham first went out and defeated a coalition of kings and rescued his nephew Lot. It was also in Hebron that Abraham had bought some land and then he was buried there along with his wife Sarah and along with their fathers Isaac and Jacob. All of these things should have been flooding through their minds as they're spying out the land. The promise should have been thrust right before their very eyes, a vivid reminder of God's covenant and his promise that he would give this land to Abraham and his descendants. The sad thing is they ignored it. Or even worse, they didn't just ignore it, they rejected it. They did not believe that God would keep his promise. And their unbelief continues as they continue their report in verse 28. Because they say, however, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. They're indicating their lack of faith. 
They see the good land, but they point out not the good land. They point out the strength of the enemies who live there. And their entire focus continues to be on the obstacles in their way, not on the promise of God. And when Caleb first tries to speak up and get the people's attention, he tries to draw them back to focus on God. The majority report lashes out. They get more aggressive. And they exaggerate. And they begin to make things up to try to sway the people, to try to instill fear in the people. They spread a bad report among the people. And it works. Now the people are swayed by the bad report of the majority and they join in the unbelief. Instead of putting their hope in God, instead of remembering His promise, they join in the unbelief of the majority report and the people can't see anything but the giants, the obstacles in their way, the problems that they face. They look at the odds stacked against them and they see that it's a task that is too great for any human to accomplish. And so they reject the Lord. They reject His covenant. They reject His promise. They're controlled by their unbelief. And their unbelief leads them to fear. And their fear leads them to rebellion and to disobedience. They were deceived. And they were acting like fools. And you can see this in their response in chapter 14. All the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They ask the right question. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? But then they indicate their unbelief. Not to fall by the sword. He's promised that he was going to give, this, give them this land. In Deuteronomy 1, the story is retold, and they said, The Lord has brought us into this land because he hates us. You see how much they've been deceived. This should have been a moment of great celebration and joy, recognizing the fulfillment of the promise. Instead, they say, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, would become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Are you kidding me? Go back to Egypt? Don't they remember? How they suffered in Egypt and they were slaves and they cried out for deliverance. And the Lord answered and he did deliver them. But they say to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They've been swayed by the disbelief of the majority. Their focus is not on God. Their focus is on their disbelief and it is so tragic. From the brink of victory... They've been snatched back into the jaws of defeat. But the faith of the few stands in stark contrast to the fear and unbelief of the majority. Caleb and Joshua see things very differently. Well, they saw the same facts. They saw the same physical circumstances. They saw the same warriors in the land. They saw the same strength of the cities. But they saw it through the eyes of faith. They saw it through the perspective of God's faithfulness to his covenant and to his promise. And in chapter 14, Caleb and Joshua get to the theological heart of the matter. And what is at stake in verses 6 through 9? Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, 
tore their clothes. A sign of great mourning and anguish in response to the disbelief of the people. They tear their clothes and they say to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The focus of the few here is on the Lord. The Lord is with us. He's called us to this. He's promised this land to us. Reminds me of what the psalmist says. When he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Psalm 20 where he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what Caleb and Joshua were doing. But they were rejected. It also reminds me a little bit of something that just recently happened in our family. Uh, Just a few weeks ago we were over at my wife's parents' house, and the kids were enjoying swimming, and my wife's brother and his wife and children were there as well. And they have a, a little boy named Evan. He's three years old, and he and Luke love to play together. And anytime we get together, it's never enough time for them to play. So when we leave, you know, they're trying to stay longer, and, and Luke's always, like, sneaking Evan into our car to try to get him to come home with us. And, and this time, he's in the car with us, and we know it, and we get in, and we say to Evan, well, it's time for us to go. You have to leave. And, and Evan looks at us, and he says... No, mommy said yes. Mommy said yes. And his mom wasn't there for us to determine whether or not she really said yes that he could come. Uh, But Troy did not say yes. So we had to get him out of the car and say, okay, it's time to go. But then a few days later, Evan's at home with his parents. And he spoke to his mom kind of gruffly. He had his shoes on. He's like, mommy, tie my shoes. And his mom sat him down and was explaining to him, That's that's not an appropriate way to speak to your mom, talking about respect and things. And she says, Mommy, God said yes. And I thought, you know what? That is awesome. Of course, it's not my child, so I can say that. But it's awesome because he's understanding this concept that God has authority. And that when God speaks, what do you do? You listen. You obey. And so maybe he was taking it out of context, but at least... He's getting that concept down. And that is what Caleb and Joshua are saying to the people here. And they're saying it in the right context. God said, yes, this land is ours. We don't have to do the work. God is giving it to us. In the end, the issue here is not these competing estimates about the human strength of the Israelite army versus the Canaanites. The issue is not who's taller or who has more fortified cities, or who has more weapons, or who's stronger. Ultimately, all that reliance on human power is irrelevant. Because the issue at stake here is trusting in Israel's God. The issue is, God said yes. Will you believe it? Will you act on it? Unfortunately, the people of Israel would not. Because all that they could see were the giants before them. And we all face giants in our lives as well. You know, it's not the Anakites or the Amalekites or the Canaanites, but we all have giants that we face every day. 
What giants are you facing today? Now perhaps you have a struggle with some sin that keeps getting you over and over and over again. You don't see how you could be free from it. Or maybe the results of a medical test or some sickness or suffering or even the death of a loved one has caused you to doubt God's goodness. Or maybe you doubt your own ability to do what you know in your heart God has called you to do. And your focus is on the obstacles in the way or maybe the weakness of your flesh. Or perhaps you live with an unbelieving spouse or a neighbor or a child or a loved one and you don't see how their eternal destiny could change. Maybe there's conflict in your marriage. Maybe you suffer from abuse or great despair or depression or unemployment. You have bills to pay. You don't have the money to pay them. What do you see in those circumstances? Who do you fear? What perspective are you using? Are your eyes on the giants? Or are your eyes on your great God? Our lives are full of impossible challenges, humanly speaking. Do we have the power to bring a neighbor to Christ? No, we do not. Do we have the power to overcome sin on our own? Do we have the power to persevere in a difficult relationship or to heal our loved one's illnesses? No, we do not. We can't defeat these giants on our own. But that's not what God calls us to do. He doesn't call us to do that on our own. He says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. He says to us, I am with you always. He says to you, all things work together for your good. He says to us, trust and obey. Now we might find it easy to criticize the Israelites for their unbelief and to kind of be hard upon them. But isn't our own unbelief just as irrational, just as foolish? And our own unbelief can just as easily lead to defeat where there could be and should be victory. But sadly, verse 10 tells us what happened. After Caleb and Joshua make this appeal for them to remember the Lord, the people respond, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They have totally rejected the faith of the few and they have followed the vocal majority in their disbelief and in their rebellion. And there will be severe consequences. They face God's just judgment. That's what we read about at the end of chapter 14. All of those ten spies who came back and gave the bad report would die immediately. All of the people 20 years old and over who were counted in the census would die in the wilderness when they were so close to the promised land. And their children would be homeless in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering all because of their disbelief and rebellion. Well, what does this mean for us today? What is the relevance for us today as we think about this tragic story? Well, thankfully, we can turn to the New Testament and we can see why this was written for us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that these things happened as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as the Israelites did. And it goes on to say that they were written down for our instruction. And then this is also referred to in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. And Hebrews 4 tells us that the instruction to us from this story is that we are to strive to enter the true rest of God so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And that disobedience is referred to in Hebrews chapter 3 
as disbelief. We're told they were unable to enter because of their disbelief. And so I think that what this tragic story teaches us today is two main things. One, we must fight against the sin of unbelief. We must fight against the sin of unbelief. And secondly, we must strive to enter the rest that is available for the people of God. Well, how do we fight against the sin of unbelief? I think there's three things that we can do. There may be more. I'll focus on three this evening. The first is we meditate on who God is, on his character and his ways. Moses had done this in Exodus chapter 15 after they had crossed through the parted Red Sea. And then they had seen the sea collapse upon the Egyptians, the great army. Moses responded by meditating on who God was. And he said this, he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In Deuteronomy 32, Moses said, I'll proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. The psalmist says that our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Daniel tells us that God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one, no one, not even the Anakites, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? To fight unbelief, we must meditate on who God is, his character, and his ways. One of the first questions that we go over in the communicants class for our young people from the Shorter Catechism is this question, what is God? We teach them to meditate on that, to memorize that. We say, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Infinite, without limits. Eternal, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He always has been, he always will be. And unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his goodness, his justice, and his truth. We need to meditate on who God is, to think about it, to let it sink in, and to focus our eyes upon the greatness of our God. You know, if the majority had done that, if they had just stepped back for a moment and taken their eyes off of the mighty warriors, the tall, fortified cities, and they had reflected on the truth of who God was, the greatness of his promise, and acted on that belief, the story would have been much different. And they would have been able to enter in and receive the fruit of God's promise. But they had blinders on, and they could not meditate on who God was. All they could see was the greatness of their enemy before them. And it caused them to miss out. What do you see? What are you meditating on? Are you meditating on the giants? Are you meditating on your great God? The second thing that I think we need to do to fight unbelief is to remember what God has done. We must remember what God has done. You know, we're not very good at remembering what God has done. And perhaps the failure of the Israelites is one reason that God had the people set up a memorial when they finally did enter the promised land. In Joshua chapter 4, 
as they're crossing the Jordan River. God tells them to go in and bring out stones as a memorial to remind them what has happened. And this is what it says at the end of Joshua chapter 4. He said to the people of Israel, Joshua says to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. It wasn't just so that they would remember, but it was so that all the people of the earth would know that God is mighty. And that they would fear him and know him. Do you have any stones of remembrance? Do you have anything in your life that is reminding you of God's faithfulness, of what he has done for you? Are you keeping track so that you can share that with your children and your grandchildren? A history of God's faithfulness? You know, a few weeks ago we had our youth night here and Anna Slothauer, the youth assistant, talked about how she's doing that very thing. Journaling how God is working in her life so that she can look back and see the pattern of God's faithfulness, and be encouraged and strengthened in her faith. And I think that's not just a great idea, it's a biblical idea. Because you see that throughout the Old Testament. God telling his people, remember, remember, remember. Set up a memorial and remember what the Lord has done for you. You see that in Psalm 77. The psalmist encouraging us to do that very thing. Psalm 77, 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. And meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Do we remember what God has done? I encourage you to read other psalms like that. Psalm 105, Psalm 136. Where the history of God's work among the Israelite people is recorded. And what he's done for them. I encourage you to write your own. Remembering the things that God has done for you. You know, that's different for each one of us. I don't know the stories of his personal faithfulness in your lives. But I do encourage you to share that with one another. But I, knew, I do know that spiritually, what he has done for all of his children is summed up greatly in Colossians chapter 1 when he says that he has delivered or rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a good place to start. Remember what God has done for you. And thirdly, I think another way that we can fight the sin of unbelief is to rehearse the promises of God, to remember His promises, to think about them. Israel did not believe. They had forgotten God and His covenant and His promise. They didn't take Him at His word. And what happened? They died in the wilderness. They were on the brink of the promised land. And they did not believe. And God turned them around and sent them back into the wilderness where they died apart from God. It was tragic. Later on in Numbers, we're told that God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he spoken and will he not do it? Has he said And will he not fulfill it? If God says he's going to do something, 
you can be sure he will do it. His reputation is at stake. And God has a passion for his own glory. If he says he's going to do something, he will do it. When he says that he will never leave us or forsake us, you can believe it. It is true. When he says that his grace is sufficient for us, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness, you can believe it. It is true. When he says that he will supply all of our needs, you can believe it. It is true. When he says that he works all things together for good to those who love him, you can believe it. It's true. When he says that he's going to prepare a place for us and he's coming back again so that we can be with him, you can believe it. It is true. And when he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, you can believe it. It is true. When we meditate on who God is, when we remember what he's done for us, when we rehearse his promises and think on them, we must then act on that knowledge. We must respond with belief and obedience. The Israelites were so close, but they did not enter because of their disbelief and their disobedience. The psalmist says in Psalm 9 that those who know your name, O God, those who know your name, those who meditate on your character, those who know your name, those who remember what you have done, will trust in you. For you have never forsaken those who seek you. When you know God, you will trust in him. And when you trust in him, you will walk in obedience to his ways. Hebrews also tells us very sad statement that the message to the Israelites was not met with faith in the hearers. Despite all that God had done to show them his covenant and his faithfulness to his promise. He gave it to Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses. And all the stuff that happened on their journey, he was saying over and over again, yes, yes, yes. He led them out of Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Yes, my promise is true. I'm leading you to the promised land. He gave them water from a rock. He helped them defeat their enemies. He provided them with manna and quail when they had no food. He was saying, yes, 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 my promise is true. Remember it. Enter the promised land. But his message was not met with faith in the hearers. We must not follow their poor example. The vocal majority is not always right. We must follow the faith of the few. We must respond in faith and strive to enter the rest that is available to us. And we enter that true final rest of God for the people of God only through Jesus Christ. Where God's wrath and his love meet. Where his justice and his mercy come together. For God cannot just overlook our sin. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness... He couldn't just overlook their disbelief and say, okay, go ahead in the promised land anyways. No, they suffered for their sin. But thankfully for us, God has sent his son to suffer in our place. As he bore in his body on the tree our sins so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness. As God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This invitation is given to all. Come to Christ. The only way to enter that rest is through faith 
in Jesus Christ. And the first membership question that we ask is do you believe in the son of and do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners and you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Do you believe that? And if so, will you act on it? Everyone who looks to Christ and cries out, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner, will find in him God's invitation to eternal rest. You see, for us, Christ has turned the phrase back around again. For us, he has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. And we weren't just defeated, we were dead and buried in the grave. And Christ broke through the grave and ripped us out from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. For us, he has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. I want to close with the words from the old hymn. We heard Paul and Matt and Mark lead lead us in it a few weeks ago at the ordination service. May you meditate on the truth of these words. We are bound for the promised land. On Jordan's stormy banks we stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where our possessions lie. All o'er those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. We are bound, beloved. We are bound for the promised land. No chilling wind nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I see that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in His bosom rest? We are bound for the promised land. Amen. This is the Word of God. It is true. Believe it. Receive it. May God open our eyes and grant us faith that we would place our faith in Christ and strive to enter the final rest of God, knowing that we are but pilgrims on our journey to the heavenly city. Beloved, put your hope and trust in God. Receive it. Receive the truth of the word of God for the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Father, all of our efforts would never work up faith in us. We pray that you would grant us the faith to believe. We pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the glory of Christ. That you would strengthen our faith. We cry out, Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And Father, as you grant us belief, may you also enable us to walk in obedience to your ways. May we not follow the majority who turn against you. But may we follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for that eternal rest that is ours as your children. We love you because you first loved us. We pray these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.